morning, everyone. I am uh, grateful for the opportunity to speak to you this morning. And, uh, oh, side note, Wes and Kenny are coming around with some outlines, and uh, I'll talk about those in a minute. Uh, I also have one up here on the overhead. Um, I'll also join in and welcome any visitors that we might have, and I would like to say that uh, I'm not usually the preacher who's up here, if you haven't been here before. And if you're thinking, like, man, everyone was really nice, and the singing was cool, but that preacher was, like, not so great, uh, I would say give us another shot, because uh, we have two other guys more talented than I. But uh, let's get into it. So the, the title of the lesson this morning is Side Effects of Sin. And uh, I chose this title because I was thinking, have you ever seen a drug commercial on TV? And uh, for, I don't know, like high cholesterol, let's say, or something like that. And uh, the first, like, quarter of the commercial is, you know, this thing is so great, it will lower your cholesterol. And then the next 75% of the commercial is like, but your liver might explode, and your kidneys will fail, and, uh, you know, all that kind of bad side effect stuff, right? And, um, you know, I think sin can be the same way, and that uh, is, is enticing, and we think maybe it, it won't be so bad, or we can dabble in it, and these are all points that we'll get to, and yet... The side effects are overwhelming um, when we really take a look at it. And that's what we want to see this morning, the side effects of sin. Not necessarily the direct, obvious consequences, but more so the side effects, the unintended consequences of sin, uh, and how we can get ourselves tripped up in that, and, uh, and then, of course, how we can maybe get out of it or, or avoid it. And so we're going to uh, look at the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, because it's a pretty good story of a guy getting pretty wrapped up in his sin. And we're going to go through the story, and if you have an outline in front of you, the way that uh, I designed it is, instead of using a PowerPoint, because I'm not very good at PowerPoints, um, this is kind of like a skeletal note sheet, and uh, I'll take kind of some notes over here on this nice little overhead thing we have here. And uh, feel free to take notes, of course, on your own, however you would like. Uh, but that's what we'll do. So, let's jump into the story, and if you would, I would mark 2 Samuel 11, uh, which is where the story takes place. We will jump to some other passages, but we are going to go through most of the story here in 2 Samuel 11, so you might want to mark that. And we'll pick up in verse 1, and it says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab, Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. And here I think in verse 1, I mean, this is a pretty seemingly innocent event, that kings go out to battle, and yet David stays at Jerusalem. And I'd say, well, it must be important enough that the Bible mentions that Kings normally are going out to battle, and yet David would choose to stay behind. And I think this is a lot of the time when sin gets presented to us, or the occasion for sin gets presented to us, when there's the thing we would normally do. David would normally go out to battle, and yet maybe we choose to do this other thing. And maybe this decision isn't in and of itself wrong, and yet it's not what we normally do. Maybe it's not what we should do. And those are when those occasions for sin are presented, I think. And so you'll see, this is kind of how I'm going to use this outline here. Uh, 
uh, we would see in Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll turn there. I won't turn to every single passage that's listed on the outline, uh, but they will all be there, ones even that I'll mention. But in Ephesians chapter 5, we would see, uh, beginning in verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And I think that phrase there, the days are evil, that's a curious phrase. I mean, it's a day, right? It's a period of time, 24 hours. How can that be evil? What does that mean? I think it could mean two things. Um, you know, I think maybe we live in a time when society, well, is, is somewhat evil, right? The world, if you will, the, these days that we live in are somewhat uh, treacherous and difficult. Uh, but I think also it could be referring to just time, time in general. You know, time is a blessing. God grants us time to do the right things, and yet time can also be uh, a danger. You know, too much time to uh, get into our own devices, you know, can be a danger. And so, in contrast, we need to be careful how we walk and we need to walk wise and make right decisions. Um, And, uh, you know, the other thing I'm going to do during this lesson is I'll refer to David and Bathsheba, but I'd also like to refer to some of my own experiences, and uh, you guys know a little bit about that and my history. Uh, But I'll tell you, you know, this August I'm supposed to, I would have been celebrating uh, three years of continuous sobriety. Except, a little while ago, in one stupid night, uh, I slipped up. And uh, it wasn't something I planned, it wasn't something I set out to do or schemed to do. And yet, you know, one little off decision. I didn't do what I normally would do. I didn't do maybe what I should have done. I wasn't in a place where I should have been. And that happened just that easy. And that's how sin works, man. Just that easy, uh, we can end up in a bad situation. And I think that's why 1 Peter 5, verse 8 would tell us to be of sober spirit. To be alert. Because these opportunities for sin are going to be all around us. All right, well, let's get back to the story. In verse 2 of 2 Samuel 11. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman woman was very beautiful in appearance. I I kind of put myself here in David's shoes and I say, you know, this is the best chance David has to change the entire course of his life right here. He sees Bathsheba bathing, right? Now he doesn't really have necessarily any control over that. Minus, maybe he should have been off the battle. Okay. But now he's here. And he sees this. What does he do next? Does he continue to look at her bathing? Or does he change his thought process and remove himself from that situation? And I think um, we see that illustrated in Ephesians 4, verse 27, where it would tell us not to give the devil a foothold, the NIV says, foothold. Uh, which I really like that translation because I picture like rock climbing, if you will. And uh, if you've ever done rock climbing or even on the, the fake rock climbing walls, right, there's those things. And you really got to like dig your foot in there. And we can't allow Satan to have that opportunity to dig his foot uh, into, uh, into us. Um, so he has this, this opportunity, right, to change. 
and to look away. And that's, but that's not what happens, is it? That's not what happens. Um, I was taught, it's kind of like a, in a psychology class, that when we are going to make a decision, any decision, this is the process. Feelings will lead to thoughts, will lead to actions, and those will lead to consequences. Good or bad. Now, feelings we don't necessarily have any control over, right? David seeing Bathsheba and whatever that provoked in him, whether internally or externally uh, stimulated, we don't necessarily have control over that portion. But the thought portion here in the decision-making process, that's really the biggest part where we have control. How am I going to process and think about what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing, whatever? What am I going to do with that? In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5, and I'd like to turn to this one because I, I really love the language here. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5 says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience, uh, sorry, to the obedience of Christ. Taking every thought captive. There's a lot of stuff you can read about what exactly that might mean to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But I'll tell you what I think it means. You disagree, but... I picture, let's say, uh, an army is off at war, right? And they take a prisoner captive. What's generally the goal of taking a prisoner captive? Well, they want to grill him for information, right, about the enemy. Um, Or if a police officer is bringing someone for questioning and they hold them captive... Uh, eventually they'll let them go, though, right? I think that's what we need to be doing with our thought process, especially in my head. Uh, You know, every thought that comes into my head needs to be taken captive for a minute, and it needs to be, like, run through some questioning, decide, like, all right, what I'm thinking here, what I maybe am about to do or not do, is that the best course of action to take? I heard someone say... uh, you know, my head is a screwy place. It's not somewhere that you want to be um, alone and after dark. And uh, I think that's right. You know, uh, there's a committee running up there, and uh, and every thought needs to go through committee and, and be taken captive. And um, you know, I think being a Christian is just a very mindful approach to life. Mindful, full of mind, meaning that you really think through uh, everything that you do, every thought, every feeling that comes in. So we'll jump back into the story. And in verse 3, we see, So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And I would say that here, in verse 3, and all we see David doing is inquiring about this woman. But I would say here, the process of sin has already begun. It's already begun. We would see in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, That we're to make no provision for sin. Make no provision. And I think that's what David has started to do here. Once he starts inquiring, right, about Bathsheba, I think the fantasy or the thought process, it just becomes all the more real. Oh, this is the, the wife of Uriah? Uriah, who's off at war? Interesting. 
right? And the seed is planted, and it starts to grow, and it becomes a reality. And now this is something that he could actually go through with. And I can relate to that too, man. You know, when I, when I picked up and slipped up that last time, it was not something I planned, like I said, and yet, you know, I was over somewhere I shouldn't have been, and uh, it just started so innocently, right? You start to reminisce about old times. Remember when we did so-and-so, and, and this and that, and yeah, we had fun doing whatever, and then you put a little question out there like, oh, do you have any of that, you know, that stuff we used to do, but yada, yada, right? And the seed gets planted, and before you know it, you're in it. And that's what can happen. Let's read on in the story. In verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. When she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. Now look at this here, and I say, this could be a wake-up moment for David. And he's going to have a lot of these. Uh, a friend of mine likes to call them yield signs, or even sometimes stop signs. Like, I really should slow down here and take a minute and look at the predicament that I've gotten myself into. And uh, I look here at David, and I say, man, all right, she's pregnant now. There's no way I can get out of this thing. Right? Like, it's obvious. It's out there. I can't easily cover this thing up anymore. So, let me just come clean. Now, if you know the story, that's, that's not what happens at all, right? David doesn't take this opportunity to come clean. Um, instead, he goes into cover-up mode, and that's what we see uh, in verse 6. Then David sent to Joab, saying, send me, the, uh, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. I see here already, like, David talking to Joab, and he's, like, you know, feeling around what he really wants to talk about. You know, how's the war going? He's not interested in that at all, you know? But we read on. Um, Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my lord, Joab, and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. You know, it appears here that David's first attempt at a cover-up is, well, if I get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife, then the pregnancy will look like his, and I'll be good. Right? That's kind of the goal here. Um, But Uriah's not going for it. Right? And I think Uriah's words really should have been enough to have some kind of impact on David. You know, Uriah basically tells him, you know, I'm about the Lord's work, right? I'm, I'm involved in the battle to remove the nations uh, from the land as God had commanded them to do. And, uh, and you just see loyalty in his words here as well. You know, Joab's out there. And uh, you know, all, my other, uh, all your other servants are out there. You know, how can I just abandon all them? And, uh, you know, I can just picture being in that situation, right? Where maybe you know 
something is not right in your life, and you get yourself into sin or a bad situation, and, uh, and someone tries to talk to you about it, right? Or maybe you're sitting in, in a you know, worship service like this and listening to a sermon or in a Bible class, right? And something pertinent is said that should have the ability to kind of prod you to change. It should spark something within you. But sometimes we just don't want to hear that. And I look at David here and I think, he just didn't want to hear that at all. We see the same thing in Acts 28, and we'll turn there, that when Paul was speaking to the Jews um, in Rome, they just did not want to hear.
that's just the way it works. I mean, we like to think that we'd be able to dabble in this, or I could just try this once. We were talking about this in the downstairs class this morning. You know, maybe I could just do this thing once, and when I grow up and mature, I'll be fine. I'll be over it. I won't do that stuff anymore. And it's just not the way it works. You get trapped in that stuff, and it's incredibly difficult to get out. And again, that's what we see here with David. He is just caught in this pattern of sin. The other thing I think we see is that when we get caught in this pattern of sin, we forget that God can see everything. And we would see that in Hebrews chapter 4, and I won't turn there, but in verses 12 and 13, it's listed there, that um, God sees everything. And yet, we focus solely on what man sees. We become obsessed with that. We, we focus exclusively on hiding our sins and our indiscretions from man. You know, and I wonder why that is. Well, I think we know God sees everything, right? But we don't face, face to face, his judgment right away. Right? But man, you know, if you guys find out about what I'm doing, well, I'm going to have to, like, face you face to face. And you're going to have judgments and opinions about what I've been doing. And I don't want to face that stuff. You know, so I hide it, and I lie, and I manipulate, and I cover like David did. And I forget all the while that God's seeing all of it anyway. You know, what am I really solving by hiding it from all of you guys? I think when James 5 and verse 16, and we won't turn there, but it's on the sheet again, it tells us to confess our sins to one another. And I think certainly we should confess our sins to one another because uh, then we can pray for one another and we can be there for one another, and that is all good. But I think another reason is to avoid the practice of hiding to man. And that will help us to not hide with God. So we need to be people who are willing to confess what's going on in our lives to one another, to be open and to be honest uh, with our brethren. So we'll look now uh, back in the story in verse 14. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written him a letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him, so that he may be struck down and die. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. And Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. And he charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? You struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth. Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died of Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Look at this portion here. And what sticks out to me is how many people at this point are now involved in David's cover, in his sin, in his manipulations here. How many people are involved? We go back to the beginning, really, of the story. We could say, well, the original messengers that he talked about that brought Bathsheba to him and that he was inquiring from, he involved them in his sin. Bathsheba herself, of course directly involved in his sin. And she's going to lose her husband as a result of it. Uriah, well, he's getting tricked and maybe gets drunk, and again, if he's going to lose his life, 
Joab is now involved in this murder, in this deception. Uh, the messenger working with Joab is involved. And, uh, and now here's David's servants, those who were also out at battle. You know, innocent bystanders are going to lose their lives because of David's entire cover-up. You know, we like to think that, you know, my sin is not affecting other people. And that's just not the case. You know, people close to us or people we don't even know about can be affected by our sin. I mean, it's just like this web that entangles not only us, but those all around us. And I think the scary thing about it is that that sin makes us delude ourselves. We see that phrase in uh, James chapter 1, verse 22. Sin make us delude ourselves. You know, we'll justify, rationalize, excuse, you know, whatever it takes to appease our consciences. And again, when enough time goes by, we don't even realize that that's what we're doing anymore. We see that in Hebrews chapter 3, which was read for us, and I'll just highlight in verse 13. And it was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Look at that. And I think we can all see that Nathan is clearly talking about David and his sin, but in a parable, right? And I said, well, why? Why does Nathan come to him and speak to him in this, this parable? And I would say, well, David's had all these other opportunities to change, these yield signs that he's blown through, and he hasn't changed any of those. And I would think if Nathan came to him and said, you know, David, you're in sin, I imagine that he would just go on and further rationalize and justify and try to cover up what he's doing and what's really going on. But when Nathan points it out in this story, in another, David's able to see it. And in verse 5, we see David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. And I look at that and I say, man, I mean, this is a bad thing that this maybe fictional guy did. But death for killing a, a lamb seems a little extreme. I don't know. But I think this is what happens. When we are in sin and we are trying to ignore what's really going on in our own lives, we become like hyper-aware of other people's wrongs. And, uh, and psychologists would call this guilt projection, right? We project the guilt that we have shoved so deep down inside ourselves that we don't want to feel, that we don't want to admit it's there. But we see in other people. And, uh, and I've seen it in my own experience. And psychologists have called out that it's a real thing. And I believe that it's, it's part of our God-given consciences. It's just another tool that God's given us to say, something in your, right is, in your life is wrong. Take a look. Uh, and so if we find ourselves engaged in that, maybe it's something um, that we need to look at. So I'm not going to read uh, all of Nathan's response to David, but in verse 7 he says, You are the man. Thus says the Lord of God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. Uh, and he's going to go on and tell him that, you know, all the stuff he would have done for him, and then he's going to tell him the punishments that are going to come because of his sin in verse 10. Therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Therefore I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will take your wives before your eyes. Uh, verse 12, you did this thing in secret. I will do this thing before all Israel. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So we see here that David is back into a corner, right? He really has no other option than to admit to his sin. And I think that, man, that is the way it goes sometimes, is we try to lie, manipulate, and cover up, and whatever we can do to ignore uh, or avoid man's judgment until everything comes crashing down on us in a sea of consequences. And again, I can relate to that. That's what, how it was for me. You know, when I was facing all kinds of consequences of living my life the wrong way, it was only then, when everything came just absolutely crashing down, that I really had no choice but to take a look at it. 
Look again, though, at what is said in verse 14. However, because this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord last week. That's a pretty, I don't know what the word is, maybe one of the greater unintended consequences. You know, we talked before about sin impacting others that we can see, but our sin can also impact others that we don't even know about. We don't see. Those we don't even know. What does it say about religion in general when those who are supposed to be Christians or righteous or moral people are engaging in all kinds of sinful behaviors and other people know about it? Uh, I was reading this article and it's called Why So Many Americans Are Leaving Their Religion uh, and it stated the following. They interviewed these group of people. They call them the nuns. It means that they're not uh, affiliated with any known religion. They could be atheists. They could be agnostic. They could be believers, but they don't associate with any uh, established religion, if you will. And it said the following. One in five nuns surveyed by the few said that they left their faith due to a dislike for organized religion. Some mentioned the Catholic Church clergy sex abuse cases. Others said they felt organized religions were just out to make money off their followers. And in these times of religious strife and discrimination, many nuns felt that too much harm has been done in the name of religion. Society today, I think, more than ever, is is just like hot and ready to call us out for being hypocrites. You know, give them any tiny reason to, uh, well, to blaspheme, if you will, as was said in 2 Samuel. Uh, And so it's even more important that we be living in such a way that we be lights to the rest of the world. And I won't turn there for time, but we would see that in Philippians chapter 2, that we need to be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Of course, the story is going to conclude with David's son actually dying, as was foretold. And we won't read that. But I do think that this leads us to uh, the most difficult of consequences, at least for me. And that's the aftermath of all the sin. It's all come out now. Now what happens? If we were to look at Genesis chapter 3, we look at the sin that occurs there. And I, you know, I want to turn there and just read one verse really quickly. In Genesis chapter 3.
things just got a lot more difficult in your life. Uh, we were talking about that downstairs. You know, people think, oh, I can just, I can just dabble in this thing, you know, while I'm young. So your wild oats is less exciting. Um, but that's just not the way it works. We can't just dabble in it because now we know and we can't unknow what it's like. You know, there's not a day that goes by, to be honest, in my life that I don't think about the things that I used to do. I think about them every day. And I, I think others in here can tell you the same thing, that they think about those things every single day. It is a daily struggle to keep that stuff out of our lives. I look also at Adam and Eve and I say, oh man, they were kicked out of paradise and now they had to experience pain and toil and all that other stuff that God tells them. How often do you think they thought about that? That they thought about, man, eating that fruit, what did that cost me? Look how much damage there was in the aftermath of that. Or I look at David and you say, man, Uriah got killed. His other servants got killed. Uh, his son gets killed. And further consequences down the line will come. How often do you think for the rest of David's life that he thought about all of the stuff that happened because of the path he went down? I would say he thought about it every single day. Every single day. I know for myself, the things that I know that I've done and the people that I've hurt, I think about them every single day. I think Mike would tell you the same thing, and I've heard him say it from, uh, from sermons from up here. We can't unknow the things that we've done in sin and the people we've hurt and all the damage that it causes. We can't unknow that stuff. You know, when I wake up on a, on a regular day, this is my last point, I know I'm a little over time. On a normal day, I wake up and, uh, and I'll go to take a shower before work. And that's generally, you know, again, the shower is when I'll, I'll do kind of my morning prayer and I might ask God to, uh, to give me a good day, to keep sober, to, uh, uh, to, to be with me and, and to, to guide me away from temptations and things like that, and for opportunities to, to do good things. And uh, inevitably then, in praying for that stuff, I start to think about the things that I used to do. So already now, I've just woken up and I'm already thinking about it. Then I get ready for work and I'm driving to work and maybe something comes on the radio or whatever. Something prompts my mind, because I'm just driving by myself. Something prompts my mind to circulate back to those things that I used to do. Right? So now it's not, I mean, it's like 7.30 in the morning. I've already thought about it twice in one day. And the day's going to continue on. I'm still going to think about that stuff as the day goes on. Maybe someone mentions something, or I'm alone, and again, that committee starts working up there. I can't unknow that stuff. That's the side effect of sin. I can't unknow what I've experienced. I can't unknow um, the damage maybe that was caused because of my sin. But that's the package. That's what comes with it. We think we can dabble, but it absolutely can snowball. And so this morning, uh, my final thought I'll leave with you is that if you haven't gone down that path, I pray that you don't have to. I think we were talking about that downstairs. You don't have to experience all these things just because everybody else does. You don't have to go through it. You don't have to know all those parts of sin. But if you have, a lot of us maybe have, uh, it doesn't mean that there's, you know, there's no chance for you anymore because you've experienced these bad things. 
We have to lean into God, and we know that he will forgive us and restore us if we do so. It won't be easy, but we certainly can do that. We would see in Psalm 51, David's response at the end of all this, and I'll just read the first three verses. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This morning, if you need the prayers for those uh, here, or you'd like to rededicate your life to the Lord, or whatever you need to do, please come forward as together we stand and pray.